Welcome to PLN Rewind. Tune in to catch up on the Progressive Law Network's past events and discussions about the many ways in which to engage with legal challenges to bring about positive social change in our community. We'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land on which we, which each of us are situated, wherever you might be on your Zoom call individually. So we pay respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that Aboriginal sovereignty was, has never been ceded. Cool. So um, just a quick hello and thank you all for coming. Um, I'm Annie, for those of you who don't know. Um, so I just wanted to say we're all very excited to have you guys here for the second instalment of our book club run by the PLN and the DLA. Both of us are student bodies whose purpose is to unite law students generally with a focus on public interest law through events and discussions like these. So um, we're very excited to have you here. But would you mind just giving a general summary about the decision of the Pell case, the High Court decision? Unanimous that uh, Pell's appeal should be upheld and verdicts of acquittal should be entered after he'd been uh, the subject of one hung jury in the county court and then convicted on a second trial. And then that conviction had been upheld by a two to one uh, majority in such a way that the High Court said it had the tendency of reversing the onus of proof. And what they meant by that was that the Court of Appeal looked at the matter by saying, firstly, the complainant, so the witness who was giving evidence against Pell, was someone that we viewed as credible. And so this conviction will stand so long as there's nothing else in the case that's what the majority in the Court of Appeal said. And what the High Court said is that that's the wrong way to go about it. Basically, when you're dealing with a criminal matter and you're dealing with um, an appeal against the reasonableness of a jury verdict, what you need to do is look at the entirety of the evidence. They're also quite critical of the um, Court of Appeal for re-watching the video of the complainant giving evidence from the county court on the basis that they said it was presumed that when the jury convicted that they must have found this person to be a credible witness. So there was really nothing for an appeal court to do in watching at a second time. So that's, that's pretty much the decision in a, in a nutshell. Yeah, thank you for summarising it. It's quite a difficult, quite technical and finicky, so thank you. Um, could you, do you think you could talk a little bit about the unreasonable doubt? Um, and I, in the podcast, I really like how, I think it was Jeremy who said, justice isn't truth, it's proof. And um, so with the context of that, um, what, what is beyond reasonable doubt? Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things about the, the Pell case was that it actually it was more the application of these sort of principles than actually the High Court changing any of them. Basically, your starting point in every criminal trial is that uh, an accused person is presumed innocent until the evidence proves otherwise, and that that proof has to be to a standard beyond reasonable doubt. And that's a standard 
that is pretty much reserved for criminal trials. So it doesn't apply if you're having a fight about money in the county court because you're trying to sue someone to prove they, they owe you money. Um, it doesn't apply in um, a court or a tribunal like VCAT if you are just dealing with someone being accused of maybe some sort of professional disciplinary issue. So it pretty much is reserved for criminal trials. Um, and no doubt that's because in criminal trials, there's certainly the most at stake. And I think over the centuries, it's been decided that if the state is going to exercise what is the ultimate power over an individual, you know, in a, it wasn't that long ago that the state could kill an individual, um, you know, uh, based on a conviction by a jury. Even now, you can lock somebody up for their entirety of their life or close enough to. And um, in criminal cases, that's the standard that applies. And um, beyond reasonable doubt are words that in court get very little explanation attached to them in that they're really words that are, um, their meaning almost comes from their context. Namely, they're ordinary English words and you're applying it in a situation where this is a really big deal. The consequences of this are huge. As in, you don't, it's not a matter of having a fanciful doubt or just some theoretical doubt, but um, if you're going to say this person, you're convicted of a serious sex offence and you're going to cop the severe consequences of that, um, that's the context in which the juries uh, understand what a, a reasonable doubt is. And in the, um, in the appeal context, so with the High Court, um, what they're really saying is, is that there's a reasonable possibility that this person did not commit the offence. Doesn't mean he probably didn't commit it. Doesn't mean he, you know, he's very likely to have committed it, but that there still existed, based on the evidence, a reasonable possibility that this was an innocent person. And uh, the judgment we make as a society is, well, if that exists, even if it means letting quite a few guilty people go free, um, we'd rather do that than have the mistake on the other side of the ledger. Yeah, which is, yeah, very interesting. Um, on that, we have Winuri asking a question about this, the burden of proof. Winuri, would you like yeah. to ask? Yeah. Hello, Mr. Hanabury. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Call me Justin, that's fine. Okay. Justin? <laughs> Thank you, uh, thanks, Justin. Um, so my question is, do you think that sexual assault survivors are held to an impossible evidentiary threshold when they're required to prove that the alleged assault occurred, um, especially given the challenges with lack of physical evidence, corroborative eyewitnesses? So does that beyond reasonable doubt yeah. standard really, is it impossible for survivors to, to meet? Um, it's 
not impossible um, because many people do get convicted, but there's no doubt that the nature of sexual assault cases proportionally produces more acquittals than other kinds of cases. That's just a statistical reality. And if you think about the way evidence, the normal evidence in a sexual assault case, you can sort of understand why that's the case. Because you're right, you've got a high standard of proof. What's the evidence to fulfill that high standard of proof? Well, quite often, it may just be one person saying this event happened and another person saying this event did not happen. Now, that is a, a challenging situation to prove beyond reasonable doubt. There's no, there's, um, that's absolutely correct. Um, it's very difficult for a jury of 12 to turn up in court. You can imagine what it's like for a jury. You turn up, maybe on the first day of the trial, because often there's maybe not much evidence in these trials, you might hear from one witness who says, this person did this to me. And then you might hear from another person saying, I did not do this. And both are people who are complete strangers to you before that day. It's not like you can say, look, this is a real dilemma. I've got two people saying different things. I might, um, you know, I better get to know both of these people a bit and see who I trust. You don't get that opportunity. The jury gets to see those two pieces of evidence and then they're asked, has the prosecution proven beyond reasonable doubt that this is the case? Now, in that situation I, I, I illustrated for you then, just as a matter of mathematics, you might think, well, that's a really, really hard, hard thing for the prosecution to prove. Um, often there's other pieces of evidence as well that might contribute to the prosecution case. For example, in some cases, there might be, you know, some forensic evidence, like some DNA evidence or medical evidence or something like that. So you're absolutely right. It is very difficult. But the question is, um, uh, what can you do about that that doesn't um, create an equal and potentially far worse problem, namely people getting falsely convicted of things they didn't do. That's the, that's the, that's the challenge. Um, uh, I just wanted to quickly say, uh, that was a really awesome question and thank you for the answer, Justin. Um, and it kind of makes me think like strictly for witness evidence, which can sometimes be the only thing available when so much time has passed and maybe it occurred when DNA evidence wasn't such a big thing, um, is that I think that there is like this inherent disadvantage to someone who has a narrative that almost relies upon there being limited witnesses because it, it tends to be an act of sort of something that happens privately, whereas the person mm. on the other side, for example, in Pell's case, his narrative is available to have 23 witnesses to back it up. And I think that perhaps that 
imbalance can be something that crosses a jury's mind? Um, yeah, look, no, no doubt about that. It's, it's, if you're a prosecutor, um, obviously the less evidence you've got, the harder it is for you to prove it, especially if you're confronted with someone who's going to deny this happened. If, if it's just a word-on-word -word situation, um, it, it's a very challenging thing for the jury to say, one witness, I believe you beyond reasonable doubt, and another witness, um, I reject what you say beyond reasonable doubt. That's, that's very tough. Um, and uh, the jury acting reasonably can't just do that for no reason. So that's why they might have to look to other evidence that might support one contention uh, or another. And I can tell you, this, as somebody who's run a lot of these trials, you win these trials by just simply um, arguing that mathematical difficulty for the prosecution. You don't win these trials very often by some triumphant crushing of the complainant and exposing them as a terrible liar in the witness box. I've run cases where I've basically not examined the complainant at all and effectively reduced the matter down to, oh well, that's what she says. He says something different. He's in a position where they say, look, that person's telling that account. Um, sounds perfectly reasonable, but the person who got in the witness box and said, I didn't do it also sounds perfectly reasonable. It's a hard position. So um, uh, that's often the nature of these allegations. Can I say, especially the ones that are alleged to have occurred a long time ago. Obviously, the ones that are immediately reported often have additional evidence, but the, the ones that are historic in nature, um, it's very challenging to find evidence to support that account. Can I say equally to that, if you think about it from the flip side, it's very tough for somebody accused of an offence like this that's occurred a long time ago to prove they didn't do it. So it's very hard if somebody accused you of doing something on, well, maybe you're, you're a bit young, but I'll just say with me, if somebody accused me of doing something on, uh, you know, the 13th of December, 1996. Now, I don't know what I was doing that day. I can't remember where I was. I can't find any witnesses to tell me I wasn't where this person says I was. So it's the forensic disadvantage doesn't go all one way, but the difference is, it's the prosecution who've got the job in front of them. The accused can say nothing and still win the trial. The prosecution can't say nothing and win the trial. That's the dilemma with these cases. And that's why um, outcomes of trials can be very uncertain. And that um, if all you're relying upon is a conviction in court, that's only gonna cover a very small number of victims of sexual assault. Yeah, actually, I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. It's also very hard to prove that you weren't there, but the burden is on the prosecution. So yeah. I think that's a good point. Um, I think this is a good time for Catherine, your question. 
Yeah, yeah sure. Um, I guess my question is a follow-up to the issues surrounding um, prosecuting these cases in the first place um, and that the evidentiary threshold is so high. Um, should we be looking at like altering in some way the burden or standard of proof for these types of cases or is that um, too dramatic given you know what's at stake which you've already touched on a little bit um, and secondly are we pay, um, are we placing too much I guess confidence in the law um, and the criminal justice system to handle these sorts of cases or maybe they're just so incompatible with our current system that we should be looking at something else entirely yeah can, can I say I think your second point's a very good one because I think if you are basically saying to a victim of sexual assault that all we can ever do for you is get a conviction of the person who did this to you, you're going to fail in that so often that um, uh, that can't be the answer. That can't be the sole way to help someone. Um, you know, uh, the reality is some criminals get lucky. You know, sometimes there's DNA left at the crime scene. Someone, sometimes there's not. Sometimes a witness forgets things. Sometimes a witness isn't believed. There's a lot of imperfections in our criminal justice system. It's, and there's a lot of imperfections because we're all human and that's the way it goes. And all we do in our criminal justice system is we acknowledge there's imperfections and we're going to do our best to make sure those imperfections don't lead to an innocent person being locked up for uh, any length of time. And I think that's fair enough. In terms of the burden of proof, can I say this, in a criminal trial, that's the standard. However, in a civil trial, it's not. And um, for example, there's many um, victims of sexual assault who I don't doubt now will be taking up the opportunity post-Royal Commission to take civil action against uh, various institutions, the church, schools, you know, uh, various um, uh, places where uh, people were meant to be getting looked after where they weren't, or perhaps even individuals. And when all we're talking about is pure compensation, as in this person caused me a physical or mental injury as a result of a sexual assault and they should compensate me for that, when that's what we're dealing with, it's not beyond reasonable doubt. So in the civil courts, and if, you know, for example, uh, you may recall OJ Simpson, you might recall it, but I will, uh, from 1993. Now, OJ got acquitted. He ended up being sued civilly by uh, the Brown family and ended up having to pay $35 million uh, in compensation for, uh, for the killings. And um, it depends on how you look at these things. You can effectively have a court finding in a civil jurisdiction that on the balance of probabilities, this person committed this assault and they should compensate the person for it. 
Um, I thought that's a really interesting point. I forget, um, Justin, because I think a lot of friends that I've had who um, a few people have had experiences of um, sexual assault as well when they were young and people who aren't of um, aren't aware of legal jargon and have that kind of experience, people have been saying things like saying, oh, the system is broken. However, I think it's a really interesting point to bring up the fact that just because that's the... Um, beyond reasonable doubt is the proof in criminal trials. That doesn't mean that that's equivalent for civil. So civil can be like a real um, pathway towards not really to feel as if the the trial was it went the way that they thought it would, but you can still um, have prosecution and things like that in that way, I think. So that's a really good yeah. point to bring up. Yeah, well, if you might read that... Um uh, there was a case uh, of a bloke called uh, Clark, um, oh, I've forgotten his first name now, but he, um, 10 years ago, where he'd similarly been acquitted of uh, rape at trial, but then got sued civilly and got uh, found um, liable for the damage that it caused. Um, so look, that, look, I'm not saying it's a complete answer, um, and I can only imagine it must be incredibly galling for someone to have not just been the victim of sexual assault, but to then have to go to court and sit there while the person they know did it to them sits there and pleads not guilty and um, says um, uh, that the other person's telling lies. That must be infuriating. It also made me ponder a little bit about... Um how you said yes, um, you know, to have somebody innocent being imprisoned for something is is why the standard is so high. But then on the other on the flip side of that, there's also that risk of sexual assault victims living with like knowing that their offender got off without being prosecuted, which is also, as you say, like so horrific. Yeah. Oh, it must be must be must be terrible and I think we as a society have to work out a way to um, assist those people um, because you can't give everyone a conviction because the system's not built that way. Yeah. Um, Matt, would you like to? Yeah, um, I think that my next question works well with this line of conversation because I do think that um, the civil pathways and the alternative pathways provide good redress for people that maybe doesn't um, force them to engage with the criminal system, which can be a little bit unforgiving for people in these circumstances and lead to these really terrible outcomes for them. Um, but I wonder, like, because sort of... I think that a criminal conviction for people has a huge significance and it can be really validating for people to get that as opposed to getting compensation. So in terms of us trying to alter the system to help those people to, to get that aspect of um, closure, I wonder if you would make a distinction between, say, for example, how the limitation, like the time limitation on um, charging someone with a historical sex offence has been changed like by legislation, which is a departure from how we treat other offences, whether 
it would be possible to do something similar in regards to the burden of proof and to make that distinction between other offences and ones of this type? Um, well, I'd say in Victoria, um, but for a few very specific offences like occupational health and safety offences and some Summary Act offences, we don't have a statute of limitations here. So you might have thought, if you've been following the Harvey Weinstein case at all, it's been interesting there that he's had so many accusers, but there's actually been so few that have been capable of prosecution in the US because they've got a, for some reason I don't understand, they've got a statute of limitations on when they can issue sexual assault proceedings. Now, we don't have that limitation here. Um, the way th this system has uh, been reformed, probably over the last two decades, has focused on um, issues like the evidence that's admissible in sexual assault cases and the way in which those um, trials are conducted, rather than focusing on the burden of proof per se. That in the 1960s, 1970s, it was common practice if a woman was making a complaint of rape, that in court, she would be basically slut-shamed and effectively humiliated about you know, what she was wearing, what she was doing, what she was drinking, all those things to effectively attack or, or who she'd slept with before in order to um, suggest that this couldn't have been rape, it must have been consent. Now, that line of attack has been illegal now in Victoria for about 15 years, in that you are no longer able to um, raise someone's sexual history as a relevant part of a sex trial, unless you've got a very specific reason and the judge gives you leave to do it and I can tell you that happens very 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 rarely it used to be that a sexual assault complainant would have to go into court and effectively face their accuser in the same courtroom it's very common now and in fact it's almost always the case that that evidence will be pre-taped and then just played to the jury so a lot of that um, a lot of that real um, defence by intimidation or defence by shame or defence by attacking someone's perceived promiscuity or moral, sexual morals or any of that, that's really, um, that's really not part of the, the, the system anymore. And you can actually see with, with Pell, it was very interesting in that case in that it, when you read the High Court judgment, there's almost no criticism made of the complainant's evidence. The whole focus is on um, not about whether he was a good, bad or indifferent witness. They all accepted he was a good witness. It was all about the other evidence about, you know, where altar boys were and where priests were and where people from the choir were. So, um, yeah, that, that's really where things have changed. It, it's been a continuing process of working out procedural change 
while still maintaining that core element of um, proof beyond reasonable doubt. Yeah. And do you think that's the right way to go about it? Just personal opinion? Um, can I say, I do. I would also add to this though, don't think any of those changes result in more people being convicted as a proportion of those cases before the court. I don't think these days those sort of attacks would go down well anyway. I think in an era, in the era we live in, if there was some, you know, 60 something male barrister shouting at a young female complainant and accusing her of having slept with too many guys, I'm not sure how well that'd go down with most female jurors. That wouldn't be particularly effective these days. Um, but there's no doubt also that if you think about the burden of proof, for the prosecution to have their key witness not in court and maybe on a pre-taped video, even though the same words might be said, in my experience, I don't think they quite have the same resonance with the jury. Um, it's hard to convey to the jury um, that this person who you've never met before should be believed beyond reasonable doubt if all they're seeing is a videotape that was made three months ago. Um, now in Pell, they saw that and they accepted that and there's plenty of other cases they do, but um, I do wonder sometimes whether in an effort to um, improve the processes to make a sexual assault complainant experience in court less stressful, that that can come at the cost of the effectiveness of the prosecution case to some extent. Wow, very interesting. Good question, Mads. Like that one. Um, uh, I would like to move on to just a quick chat about the Royal Commission recommendations. Um, Conan has a question on that. Yeah, so Justin, just generally with the Royal Commission, could you give like a general summary of some of the recommendations that the Commission made and what you think is the most likely to be implemented? If I say I'm not going to claim to be an expert on Royal, the Royal Commission, but I think the, the main one that will have an impact is around the use of, um, what am I called? tendency evidence, namely uh, in a criminal case, your starting point is basically this. The jury don't get to find out any other bad things you've done, okay? So if you're charged with armed robbery number one, um, the chances are they're not gonna find out that um, six months before that, um, you punch somebody in a pub. Okay, that's, that's your starting point. We basically want the jury just to focus on the charge and we don't want them to say, well, you're just a generally bad person because you punched someone at a pub six months ago and so you must have done this other unrelated crime. However, in sex cases, that can be different in that there are times when the evidence about other things a person has done can be relevant to determine whether they've done it in relation to this particular charge. Um, and uh, what the Royal Commission's um, uh, been keen to 
see is that there's been some rebalancing of that um, issue so that whereas now um, there's some tight rules about, for example, when a jury hearing a trial about one particular victim might be able to hear evidence about a separate victim when it occurred, the Royal Commission's basically saying, look, there should be more occasions where that could happen. Yeah, now, now that's, that's quite a big thing. Because I can, I can tell you this, um, in running a, a sex trial, if it's the situation I described earlier, where it's one complainant saying it happened and one accused saying it didn't happen, well, can I tell you, from an accused perspective, you'd fancy your chances of winning that eight times out of ten. If, however, it is two, the jury hear about two complainants saying something happened to them and there's nothing to suggest that they've got their heads together. They're just two separate people who said this one person did these sexual acts to me. Well, if you're the jury, let's just say your comfort in thinking this person's guilty of that offence is, uh, is raised pretty substantially and your chances of winning it drops massively. I, I would say actually going from one complainant to two complainants in the same trial would reduce your chances of winning by a factor of five, six, seven, eight, something like that. And uh, I'll give you a bit of an example of that. There was a, um, a pedophile priest, a bloke called Robert Best, who's currently doing about 20 years jail um, for a series of sexual assaults on children in his care. When he first started having trials run against him, you know, 10 years ago, each one of those trials was heard individually. So each individual jury only heard that Brother Best was being accused by one person. He won most of those trials because you can understand when it's divided up one-on-one, -on -one, you can pick them off one by one. When they're all heard together, that makes a, a much bigger problem for him. And uh, it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a common occurrence. I would say whenever the prosecution gets a chance to run more than one complainant on the same trial, that is an enormous benefit for them. And so you can imagine, uh, you know, Mr. Cardinal Pell got acquitted of the cathedral trial how do you reckon he would have gone um if it had have been the fact that he'd uh also had evidence about him sexually assaulting children in ballarat in the swimming pool that was also part of the evidence before the high court wouldn't have helped it might have actually uh helped the jury the uh, high court to say you know what there's also evidence here that this bloke's got what, might, what you might call a tendency to attack children. So instead of it being a random thing, it suddenly becomes part of a pattern and part of a series of events consistent with a known characteristic. So that's a massive change. And that's, uh, I, I think that's 
really uh, probably going to be the biggest change in terms of the way criminal cases run from the um, uh, uh, from the uh, Royal Commission's perspective. Justin, can I just um, ask a follow-up question? Um, speaking on those who haven't studied evidence yet, um, in terms of tendency evidence, are we talking about evidence of other prior convictions or evidence of allegations of offending? Because if it's primary, if it's only convictions, then arguably, to play the devil's advocate, you could say that it may not make a significant difference. For example, in the case of Pell, the swimming pool trial was swimming pool trials, I believe, were cancelled um, because of issues with evidence again. Yeah, that's right. Um, but in in most jury trials now, where there is tendency evidence, it's actually very rarely just from a past conviction. More often, it is evidence from the same complainant about something else having happened that's not the subject of the charges. So, for example, charge one might say you did something on the 1st of January, but the witness might say it wasn't just on the 1st of January. He also did it six other times that year. The jury might be able to use that to convict him of the one on the 1st of January. Or um, it can be that the person's accused of doing it to person A, but there's also evidence that he did it to person B. And that doesn't have to have been a previous trial. Um, that can be, you know, part of the, the same trial. So uh, it, it's, um, it's been a very complex and controversial area of the law. It's probably been the subject of more appeals than any other area of criminal law, because you can imagine if the prosecution get that evidence in, the chances of acquittal plummet. So it's, it's potentially fatal evidence for an accused, but because it's so fatal, the risk of it being brought into a case and used improperly um, is really high. So that's where a lot of the controversies come in, as in it's really evidence that's got what you, what you would call a huge prejudicial effect. Um, and the issue is whether it's also got what's called probative value, namely it's not just about making you look like a bad person, so you're more likely to be convicted. It's a matter of actually having proper... Um, uh, relevance to whether you committed that offence. So that's a very fine balance that um, is often highly debated in court. Thanks, Justin. That's a really interesting point, I think, about um, the statistics. I mean, statistics used sort of like in trial of tendency. Um, I have kind of a follow-up question. Um, I think it's based on the impact of fair trial and probative value of evidence, as you were saying. Um, uh, in the podcast and today, you mentioned that the Court of Appeal erred in, sense by, in a sense by reversing the onus of proof, which should ordinarily rest with the prosecution. I was reading an article um, in March by, written by Liberty Victoria upon warnings about the New South Wales Evidence Amendment Tendency and Coincidence Bill written in 2020. 
um, and the suggestions of proposed Victorian legislation that would be based on that bill. It uh, essentially it reduces um, the onus and threshold of evidence and presumption of admissibility. The article speaks of the danger to innocent to innocent people convicted based on past con conduct rather than direct evidence concerning the offending conduct. Um, what's your personal analysis on that benefit versus cost of reducing evidence requirements for historical sexual abuse of children versus impact of a fair trial and onus of proof in our legal system as everything that you've been saying today? Uh, it is a very difficult question that can only really be answered on a case-by-case -case mm. basis. Um, there's no doubt that if you're talking about whether on one particular sex trial, evidence about um, other uncharged sexual conduct can become part of that trial, it will certainly be more compelling the more similar that conduct is. So, for example, if the uncharged conduct is just so similar mm. to what's gone on in the charged conduct that you might say, well, of course, it makes it more likely that charged act occurred because this person the chances of this person having uh, another person making up an identical story to that is just impossible. So, of course, that's relevant. I think where it becomes where it becomes harder is when the acts themselves are more distant in time, mm. and where the acts themselves are not so similar, or without being too crude about it, they're kind of generic. Acts, you know what I mean? They're not particularly distinctive. I think that's where it becomes harder um, because it, it's a tough job being on a jury. And when the judge tells you, uh, you know, you can hear evidence about another sexual act this person's meant to have done, but don't use it to reason that he's just a terrible person, so you should convict him. You can only reason it to say it shows he's got a sexual attraction to underage girls or something like that. I mean, we're getting into some pretty nuanced sort of uh, areas. On the other hand, though, I gave you that example of uh, Brother Best. I mean, did that sound mm. fair that he got to basically hide from every jury the fact that he'd already been convicted of multiple similar sex cases against other people in similar positions and the one accusing him now. Mm. I mean, that's, that's mm. the balance that comes into it. Interesting analysis. Mm. So just so do you think that if, if we were talking about um, the proposed changes to admin admissibility, do you think that those kind of bills should be passed or does that really just overarch over everything that our legal system is based on of um, beyond reasonable doubt and the onus of proof. Do you think that's too important to be able to pass any of those bills? Look, ultimately, um, the one bit of legislation that sort of controls everything is the Evidence Act. And what the Evidence Act says is that admissible evidence is, re so relevant evidence is admissible, namely it's relevant. So if you start with that starting point, how does this piece of evidence 
make it more likely that the accused did what they're being accused of. If your answer to that question is just basically, he's a bad person, I don't like him, he's probably done some other bad thing, that's probably not a great answer. Uh, if the answer is he's done something so similar before that makes it more likely he did it on this occasion as well, that's one thing. And ultimately, whatever the legislation is, um, it's the courts that ultimately, and the judges that have ultimately got to decide um, what's in the interests of justice and what's a fair trial. And that's the challenge, and that's why you all need to study hard because you'll all have to work that out yourselves. There are, that's why the that's why the judges are the smart people because they're hard, hard questions to balance. Very, very, very difficult. And yeah, I feel like we could delve very deep into a lot of these small little points um, if we had lots of time. Um, does anybody, any other participants have some questions or thoughts or comments that they want to share? Um, yeah, I had a question about um, just in the context of the redress schemes that are being set up, like the national redress scheme and the Melbourne response. Um, it seems to me that like complainants kind of have three options, like civil case, criminal or these redress schemes. Can you comment a little bit on the desirability of those three sort of options? Uh, well, look, well, I wouldn't have thought that, um, I can tell you, the, the case I've got tomorrow has been the subject of both criminal proceedings and a civil settlement. So um, it, it, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, in, in terms of redress schemes, we're in circumstances where at the moment, running things through court systems take an awfully long time. They're expensive, they're stressful, the outcome's uncertain. Um, it would seem that where there's opportunities to create some shortcuts for people who have suffered to get some kind of compensation and get some kind of acknowledgement of their suffering. That would seem to be clearly in the best interests of society. Um, I wouldn't want to sit here and be perceived to be advising anyone in that situation as to, you know, what's right, what's wrong and what's, what's preferable. That's an incredibly difficult circumstance that somebody would have to weigh up you know, with their individual lawyers, depending on their individual circumstances, perhaps their age, perhaps their state of health, perhaps their financial circumstances, all those would contribute to what options people might feel they reasonably had. Because, um, yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, your options can often depend on your circumstances. Very true. Thank you, Laura, for that question. And thank you so much, everybody, for participating. It was a very, very intriguing, very complex conversation. So thanks all for sticking it through um, and for everyone's contribution. And Justin, especially, thank you for and your sharing your knowledge. Thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. Thanks very thanks much, much, Justin. Thank, thank you, Justin. Thank you. Bye. Bye.